When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for an hour of high-powered diplomatic deliberations. Just ahead, meeting, greeting leaders of the 31 NATO members and more gathering in Lithuania for a crucial two-day summit. The urgent question of how to handle Ukraine's future membership remains front and centre. NATO Secretary General promising a, quote, clear path forward. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, though, demanding a more urgent, definitive timetable, criticising NATO on Twitter and suggesting in this case that uncertainty is weakness. Still, new defence commitments to Kyiv have been announced. The Lithuanian lowdown just ahead. Plus, Turkey's turn. Turkish President Erdogan suddenly dropping his opposition to Sweden's accession to NATO, the final roadblock to getting all Nordic nations under the NATO security umbrella. Erdogan hoping to advance Turkey's bid to join the EU in return. New U.S. weapons sales commitments to Turkey on their way too. Sweden also promising closer economic ties to the country. Former Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt will join us later to discuss all the details surrounding that. And in the meantime, primed for Prime. Amazon kicking off this year's Prime Day sales event, a critical test of consumption strength globally and also, of course, a gauge of Amazon's online oomph. Amazon's senior vice president for worldwide operations will be along to discuss Prime's promise and how generative AI, yes, you can count on it, might transform the online shopping experience. In the meantime, it's prime time on Wall Street 2 ahead of the U.S. stock market open. Futures in the green after Monday's advance too. This week is all about Wednesday's U.S. inflation reading. And in the meantime, a mixed day, as you can see, across Europe. U.K. stocks currently unchanged in the session. Bond yields there soaring to 15-year highs on record wage growth. More for the Bank of England to do in terms of rate hikes. And... Asia advancing, Chinese stocks on the rise after Beijing's fresh support to its ailing property sector. The Hang Seng there, the outperformer. A busy day as always, and we do begin in Vilnius. President Joe Biden welcoming the Turkish president's about turn on Sweden's bid to join the alliance. And this historic moment, the, the adding of Finland and Sweden to, uh, to NATO is consequential. And uh, your leadership really matters. Sweden's application, of course, must now be approved by the Turkish parliament. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, positive momentum as far as um, Sweden's entry, future entry into NATO is concerned. Far more complicated, the diplomatic dance taking place over how Ukraine evolves in their relationship with NATO. And clearly President Zelensky wanting concrete details. Yeah, he's saying in his tweet, which does sound quite sharp, that this is discussion that's being had, A, 
without Ukraine in the room, and it's always been uh, the position of Ukraine's allies that the future of Ukraine would be discussed with Ukraine in the room. That was vis-a-vis -vis actually the war in Russia, but Zelensky seems to be taking exception that their future as a member of NATO is being discussed without them in the room. And, and that's given that at this meeting of NATO, there will also be a special Ukraine-NATO meeting, an inaugural meeting where President Zelensky will be in. So he's saying this is discussion is happening without us. And his point, quite simply, this is discussion about um, about a path to become a NATO member, not about becoming a NATO member. And, you know, if you look at President Zelensky's track record through the war, it has been very demanding of allies and partners, but it's generally been calling for what has later become very clear that Ukraine needs in terms of the weapons and ammunition. One of the reasons potentially that they're struggling at the moment uh, in their fight against Russia to push them back is because the weapons supplies have been slow in coming initially. So when President Zelensky says we need this now, we need to know about uh, Ukraine's NATO membership now, this is a type of language he's used all along to try to get what he wants. Um, I think he very clearly understands the, the issue for NATO, that if, he, if Ukraine was to come in right now, then that would invoke Article 5 and all the other NATO members would be in a war with Russia. I think he understands that, but I think he wants this higher degree of certainty. I think we're going to need to check his language at the end of the summit. He generally comes into these issues hot and hard uh, and, and speaking in a very tough language and, and, and at the end will, will sound more diplomatic is what I expect. He's been a brilliant communicator, I think, all the way along. And to your point, he's asked for things ahead of time and, and forced the conversation earlier that then is presented, whether that's weaponry or beyond. What's the best they can hope for from this meeting? Security guarantees uh, political, military, economic, uh, and because that's what seems to be on offer. That's what's being discussed. You know, President Biden at the weekend speaking about the possibility of an Israel-type scenario where you get the high-tech weapons, you get the training for the high-tech weapons, you get to know that the full military muscle uh, and potential to supply that to you is standing right behind you. So that's some of the language. Obviously, uh, some of this may come out in, in bilateral relations rather than sort of as multilateral, all of NATO, all speaking with precisely the same voice. But that commitment of money and high-tech weaponry um, to continue will allow Ukraine better to plan, because clearly it doesn't look like it's going to take back all the territory it wants this year, better plan ahead for next year and the following years. But, but what he's looking for, Zelensky is looking for, is that, is that absolute concrete language that, mm. that, that gives them that knowing 100% guarantee that the door to NATO opens pretty much as soon as the door to the war closes. And that, and that doesn't seem to be where we're at at the moment. Yeah, uncertainty is weakness to quote him in that tweet. Mm. Um, some greater clarity required. Nick Robertson, thank you. Okay, now to some potential wartime profiteering. Some well-known Western companies are accused of not keeping their word after vowing to pull out of Russia. Researchers at Yale found big firms like Heineken, Unilever and Mondelez have not joined the corporate exodus. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, I remember talking to companies at the time and they were saying, look, it's complicated. They have Russian workers to protect as well. What did this research find? 
Well, Julia, you know, this corporate exodus from Russia really is unprecedented. And it began in the days and weeks after the war started. And it really dealt a serious uh, financial and even symbolic blow to Moscow. Uh, but now we are learning from this research from uh, Yale professor Jeff Sonnenfeld that you know, some companies are still very much in Russia. Uh, Sonnenfeld's research found that a Several you know, consumer-facing companies, including uh, Unilever, Philip Mars, uh, Mondelez, Heineken, WeWork, Nestle, that all of them, despite the fact that they promised to either completely get out of Russia or at least drastically scale back their presence there, all of them are very much still inside of, of Russia. Now, Sonnenfeld told me that Heineken in particular is the poster child for this. Uh, even though Heineken promised to leave Russia, here we are about 14 months later, and Heineken still has, according to Yale, seven breweries in Russia, 1,800 employees there. And Sonnenfeld says that he wants consumers to realize that if they're supporting these brands, they are supporting something that fuels the Putin regime. He told me, quote, it's beyond disappointing. It's shameful and unethical. They're breaking their promises. They are functioning as wartime profiteers. Now, this research from Yale is based on whistleblowers, corporate documents, um, on the ground experts, students who are even inside of Russia, and media reports. Now, many of the companies uh, that were named by Yale who got back to us as we reported on this, they did point out this issue that you flagged, Julia, which is that it's complicated. It's not easy to get out of Russia. There are regulatory restraints. Heineken, for example, told me that they think the war in Ukraine is a, quote, terrible human tragedy. They say they are committed to getting out of Russia. They even have a deal to potentially sell their presence in Russia, but that deal has not gotten regulatory approval just yet, Julia. Yes. It is complicated and the Russians changed the law as well to make divestitures more difficult. So you have to literally walk away from those assets rather than be able to sell them off. So it is complicated by that. But if you're offering new products and expanding your range, for example, and I think that's a different thing. Did any of those companies not respond at all, Matt, at least for now? Yeah, uh, there were a few that we didn't hear from. I think that one of the other recurring themes from companies uh, that we did hear from is that they don't want to hurt um, innocent people here. They don't want to hurt uh, some of their customers in Russia. They don't want to hurt their employees in Russia. Um, and so they're trying to figure out a way to uh, leave and, and not add to the instability. But what's interesting here is when I raised that point with uh, the Yale professor, Jeff Sonnefeld, you know, he said that is actually the point. The whole point mm. in his view of this exodus is to pressure Russian society, to make the average person in Russia aware of the war, to actually feel the impact, to have their daily lives disrupted. And he said, ultimately, the goal is to have the people aware of that and ask why this is happening and really put pressure on the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin himself. Yes, it's an argument that I think can be made in the early days of the war. 500 plus days later, it's a, a, a different question and a different answer, perhaps, too. Matt, great report. Thank you, Matt Egan there. A day of disruption and resistance is what Israeli protesters are calling it. They're ramping up demonstrations against government moves to overhaul the Israeli judicial system. Critics say it will undermine democracy. Police have arrested 66 people so far this Tuesday. Hadas Gold is in the Ben Gurion airport and joins us now live. Hadas, I can see you can barely hear me. Talk to me about what people there are saying and how many people are gathered. Yeah, Julia, well, we're at 
Ben-Gurion, Israel's main airport. And as you can tell, protesters have essentially blocked, this is the arrivals level, and they've essentially blocked the lanes of traffic here for people arriving to pick up. Now, we know that there are other protesters elsewhere in the airport, as well as in cars blocking the streets. And this is part of this National Day of Disruption. Protests began early this morning. They were at the Supreme Court. They were in the north of Israel. They've been in downtown Tel Aviv, and they're going to continue throughout the day. Now, we have been covering these protests now for months, but the reason that they have a renewed vigor to them today is because last night the coalition government pushed forward with the legislation of this judicial overhaul. It had been frozen for several months after that massive general strike in March, shut down everything in the country, including the McDonald's. The defense minister had come out against the judicial overhaul. There had been attempts at negotiations, but those failed. And so now the coalition government is moving forward in a piecemeal fashion. I apologize if it's getting super loud here. The protesters clearly are reacting to something. We know there is a massive police presence here, so it's possible that somewhere in the crowd the police are moving to arrest people. As you said, we know there have been more than 66 arrests. There have been at least a dozen injuries in light condition, but you can feel that the emotion and the intensity is definitely amping up here because of the legislation that was passed last night. Now, it's just one aspect of this overall has to do with the Supreme Court and whether they can decide that government actions are unreasonable, but it almost doesn't matter what that legislation would have meant because it's part of this massive overhaul package for these protesters. That is unacceptable, and that's why they're coming out in force. And they're coming out so much so in force that some of them are even saying they're planning to pitch tents in downtown Tel Aviv to really maintain an even more permanent presence. They say they don't plan on backing down until this judicial overhaul is completely off the table. But the coalition, Benjamin Netanyahu, saying that while they've changed aspects of that legislation, they're pushing forward with it. Julia? Yeah, so it seems the protest will continue. Hadas, thank you so much for that. And protect your voice. I'm to shout over that noise. Hadas called there. Okay, straight ahead. A major move to kickstart the NATO summit. We'll discuss what President Erdogan's about face means for Sweden, the former Prime Minister of the nation after the break. And later, time for Prime. Amazon's annual two-day shopping event underway and AI is already helping to get those products to your door. The company's senior vice president for worldwide operations joins us next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Welcome back to First Move. A major hurdle has been cleared in Sweden's bid for NATO membership. 
This summit is an historic summit because we have already made an agreement that ensures that Sweden will become a full-fledged member of the alliance. And um, this is good for Sweden, it is good for Turkey, it's good uh, for the whole NATO alliance. On the eve of the summit in Lithuania, the Turkish president agreed to support Swedish membership. President Erdogan had blocked Sweden from joining NATO for more than a year. And earlier Tuesday, U.S. President Joe Biden called the president's move a historic moment, saying he's confident the Turkish parliament will approve Sweden's application. Arlet Sainz joins us now. Arlet, it's not just about Sweden, of course. We continue to bring the focus back to Ukraine. And I think the difficulties in agreeing the path forward for Ukraine and even coming up, I think, with a statement on how that will proceed. And the United States, I think, at the forefront of that. Yeah, Julia, you know, President Biden is really hoping with this summit to show this strengthened and united front for the NATO alliance. The fact that Turkey made that stunning reversal and moved ahead with approving Sweden to join the alliance is one of those signals of unity that the White House is trying to promote as the summit has kicked off today. But there is already a major flashpoint emerging around the idea of Ukraine eventually joining NATO. Now, President Biden, before even coming to the summit, said that now is not the time for Ukraine to join the alliance. He cited the fact that that war against Russia is still ongoing. And because of NATO's Article 5, uh, if Ukraine were to join, that would dive these NATO countries directly into conflict with Russia. That is something that the president and other allies don't want to see at this moment. The president's also argued that there are still reforms that Ukraine needs to make before they can join the NATO group. And earlier today, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that the NATO uh, allies are going to try to send a positive and unified signal towards Ukraine when it comes to a pathway towards membership. But we've already heard an incredibly fiery response from Ukrainian President Zelensky. He is set to arrive here at the summit today. And in a tweet earlier this morning, uh, Zelensky said that it's absurd that there would not be any timetable laid out uh, for a possible invitation or membership into NATO. Zelensky has really been seeking security guarantees and a more clear pathway, more clear timeline laid out for when that joining of NATO could potentially happen. That's also something that some Baltic countries have called for as well, as they want to see an early timetable for Ukraine's entry into the alliance. But the White House and President Biden have simply been sticking uh, by their uh, stance that now is not the time to join. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan would not set a timetable for when the U.S. believes uh, Ukraine can join NATO. But this certainly will be an issue that will come up as President Biden sits down for a one-on-one meeting with Zelensky tomorrow. Now, in just a few hours, President Biden is also set to meet in a bilateral setting uh, with Turkish President Erdogan after Erdogan had made that announcement saying that he will approve Sweden's uh, accession into NATO. That, of course, will still have to go through the Turkish parliament, still has to have a series of votes. But it's it's worth noting what a remarkable move that is. If you just think uh, a little over a year ago, both Finland and Sweden, both countries that are typically non-aligned, uh, sought their membership into NATO. Uh, now they're moving one step clo- closer, really expanding the NATO alliance even further. One of those strengths of unity that the president is trying to stress during his two-day trip here. Yes, one tick certainly for that. More progress required.
Arlet Sines, great to have you. Let's talk more about that. Joining us now is Carl Bildt. He's the former Prime Minister of Sweden and he's the co-chair of the European Council on Foreign Relations. So fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk about the Turkish about turn, having suggested that they wanted to extract perhaps some closer alignment with the EU, suddenly turning around hours later and saying, fine, we step back. What do you make of it? Well, I don't think they step back entirely. Uh, there was a problem uh, where the Turks were complaining with Sweden that we'd been somewhat, uh, perhaps somewhat too lenient uh, with the PKK terrorist organization. And that was taken into account by the Swedish government. An action was taken. And I think that satisfied the Turkish authorities. Uh, then they were also keen to uh, reinvigorate their relationship with the European Union, which is essentially a good thing. Not an easy thing, has to be said, but essentially a good thing for strategic reasons. And uh, the Swedish government was able to make some political move in that direction as well. So I think that was a meeting of minds at the end of the day, after a rather bumpy period, to put very mildly. I think that's very mild. Um, what else? Because it was a yes. moment of... <laughs> It was a moment of yes. maximum leverage after a year for Turkey at this moment. So whatever they wanted to extract, now was the time. You've talked about, obviously, the Swedish yeah. moves, and I think that did, and I agree with you, assuage some of the concerns. What else ahead of that meeting, particularly with um, the two presidents, the U.S. president, of course, and um, President Erdogan? No, but I think if, if you look at the historical record of President Erdogan as a negotiator, he often starts out by asking for the moon and uh, often does that in a fairly harsh language as well. But um, at the end of the day, he's often a fairly realistic operator. So at the end of the day, he found that, yes, Sweden has met and is meeting the core Turkey concern on PKK. Not more than that, but that we are doing. And secondly, he was able to get some language on the EU relationship, which remains to be seen what they mean, but is a political signal that could be of some importance further down the line. Um, so, yep, it was, as you said, bumpy. That was a mild way of putting it. I agree with that. <laughs> uh, but at, at, at the end of the day, uh, we are where we are, which is highly satisfactory, I think, from both points of view. And the Russian response. What about repercussions there? They suggested that Turkey itself is sort of heading into unfriendly nation territory. Is that something else that President Erdogan can manage? Well, there have been some developments in the last few days prior to the NATO Vilnius meeting where uh, President Erdogan had made a number of moves that had made the Russians extremely upset. Yes. Releasing prisoners from the Azov and, and, and uh, signing an agreement with Ukraine on the development or production of, of drones in Ukraine. Uh, so I see that Foreign Minister Lavrov has been calling Ankara several times and saying, I don't like what you're doing. But... Instead, President Erdogan goes to Vilnius and uh, acts there. I think that's an important signal. Let's see what that means. Then, of course, we've had some sort of more verbal statements by Peshkov in Moscow against our NATO membership. Uh, but I think it's going to stay with that. Uh, they have no means of reacting and no reason to do it either, by the way. If um, Sweden's hopes to join NATO have been bumpy, then how would you describe Ukraine's efforts? A very fiery, I think, President Zelensky coming into this meeting, demanding a concrete timeline and path for entry and assurances, I think, security insurances. 
Yeah, and and I mean, it's difficult not to have sympathy with him. He's fighting a war for the survival of his nation, and he wants to have as much support as uh, he can get. And I think NATO should give as much as possible. NATO membership tomorrow might be difficult for a number of reasons, but there should be a clear pathway. And then I think the most important thing is to give as much concrete support now, military gear, financial support, all of the things that is needed for Ukraine to win this particular uh, war. And then, of course, uh, they would be welcome in NATO, and I would hope further down the line in the European Union as well. President Biden coming into this meeting said what I think every other leader, including President Zelensky, knows, which is that it's not feasible to allow Ukraine to enter NATO before the Mm. end of the war for all sorts of of military reasons, clearly. Was he right to state it, though, in such stringent terms? Or could he have been more diplomatic? It sort of created an equal and opposite response, it seems, from President Zelensky. Yeah, it did. And they both have, of course, to take their respective domestic constituencies into account. I think Kiev, Zelensky, knows roughly where things are. And, of course, he wants to have as much as out of this NATO summit as he can, both in terms of the verbal assurances, verbal assurances also concerning what's going to be in the future, but then what more can be given in terms of military supplies and financial support. Um, And I'm fairly certain that at the end of this meeting, there will be something that sort of meets the key, the key, the key demands of of everyone, including all of those Europeans who are extremely keen to give Ukraine as much support as we can. I wonder whether NATO membership in a strange way is a moot point after what we've seen from the Russian army in Ukraine, because if this performance is anything to go by, they they appear simply incapable of taking on a current NATO nation or one that's even more closely aligned in the, in the case of, of Ukraine. Is that too strong a statement to make? Oh, I think we've lost him. Carl, can you hear me? No? OK. Interesting. Interesting way not to answer the question as well. <laughs> Great to chat to him. Carvelt, former Swedish Prime Minister and co-chair of the European Council on Foreign Relations. We thank him there. OK, coming up on First Move. A chip plan called off. Why Foxconn is dropping a nearly $20 billion partnership in India. The details next. Welcome back to First Move and a top-tier Tuesday on Wall Street. U.S. stocks on the rise for a second day as investors gear up for a key read on U.S. consumer inflation on Wednesday. Fed policymakers also out in force this week, many of them expressing the need for higher interest rates to help bring inflation further down. Second quarter earnings season also coming into view. Major banks begin reporting results on Friday of this week. And companies in the news today include Microsoft. It's announcing a new unspecified round of job cuts on top of the 10,000 layoffs announced earlier this year. The new cuts will affect customer support and sales teams. When we get any further details on that, we will let you know. In the meantime, Foxconn pulling the plug on a major project in India. The Taiwanese company, best known as a phone manufacturer for Apple, is backing out of a $19 billion partnership to build a chip factory in Asia's third largest economy. Anna Stewart joins us on this. Anna, I have to say, they've got previous. What do we know about the reasoning (laughs) behind this decision? Well, this deal was huge, $19 billion. You can imagine the disappointment probably from the Indian government, although I have to say they are saying this doesn't make any difference to their ambitions to be you know, a tech manufacturing hub in the world. 
what went wrong here? Because Foxconn has a presence in India. It knows how to do business in India. It's got multiple facilities in two states. This is the statement we had from them saying both parties, so it and Vendanta, which is the Indian company it was partnering with, mutually agreed to part ways. This is not a negative. There was recognition from both sides that the project wasn't moving fast enough. And they now say they will apply for a government program that subsidizes the setting up of a chip or electronics display uh, factory. As you say, the slight disappointment here is Foxconn does leave in its wake a sort of trail of failed relationships. Uh, Sounds like a terrible boyfriend, doesn't it? Uh, Really, if you look back at Wisconsin, the factory that uh, Foxconn had promised back in 2017, that was going to be a $10 billion investment. Four years later, a few empty buildings and nothing else, and it all really collapsed. They signed a new deal with Wisconsin, but it was a fraction of that initial investment. And just a couple of weeks ago, there was that story about Lordstown Motors filing for bankruptcy and actually accusing their former partner and major shareholder, Foxconn, of uh, helping their financial ruin. Foxconn denies this, but there is no doubt that they do have this slightly awkward history now of some failed relationships. And I think if they sign a future deal with any government, I wouldn't be surprised if someone said, show me the money before they get too excited. Julia? Yes, it doesn't sound like a bad boyfriend. It sounds like an ex, Anna, quite, quite frankly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, we want some break clause conditions in there as well. Um, thank you for that. Okay, coming up after the break, hundreds of thousands, millions of boxes. It doesn't come any bigger than Amazon. And on one of the busiest days of the year for sales, we're live inside a fulfillment center, finding out how it all works. That's next. And welcome back. Have no doubt, Amazon addicts will be furiously scouring their screens as the annual Prime Day shopping event gets underway. Last year, 200 million Prime members worldwide bought over 300 million items. It makes you wonder how the workforce copes. Well, here come the robots. In 2022, 1 billion packages, making up an eighth of all orders worldwide, were sorted by one of these. Robin the Robot is an integral part of Amazon's broader handling systems. Logistics, of course, play a crucial part of the company's operations as it integrates artificial intelligence further into the business. It's also managing a multitude of other changes, including reducing its headcount post-pandemic. And John Felton is Senior Vice President for Worldwide Operations at Amazon, and he joins us now from their facility in Melville in New York. John, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk specifically about the event to begin. Um, I've seen it compared to Christmas in July. Just talk about the volumes you're expecting and how that compares to the rest of the year. Yeah, I think Christmas in July is a good explanation for it. It's uh, it's our annual event. We're now going into our ninth year of having Prime Day. Uh, and it's something that we get excited for every year. It's the whole idea of Prime Day is about how do we say thank you to our most loyal customers, our Prime members. Uh, and the best way we do that is by giving them a trucking amount of value. Last year, Prime members saved over $1.7 billion on Prime Day. Uh, and this year, we're hoping to have even more savings. Uh, we've got more deals than ever before. We're doing Prime Day in 25 different countries. And so we're really excited about how it's going. And we're excited for a great two days here. Is there a pattern in where you see the biggest bump in terms of sales over this two-day period? And how do you coordinate the logistics for the delivery of that accordingly? 
Yeah, it's a pretty good, I mean, it, it ramps up kind of during the day, and so the daytime is, is definitely more. You see a little bit of bump uh, kind of as you go into the, the evening hours. Uh, one of the fun stats that I have, actually, Japan, the last minute of Prime Day in Japan is the, is the biggest on ever, uh, ever of, <laughs> of, the, of the Prime Day. I'm not sure I can explain why that is, uh, but it happens every year, and so it's a fun little bump at the end. Um, but the logistics side, I mean, a lot of it, I'm here in Melville, New York, um, and a lot of the magic happens here. And it really is our employees that what is, is what makes it special here. And they get excited for Prime Day just as much as Prime members get excited. And so we love kind of the employee experience. I was talking to a bunch of employees yesterday, uh, and they just get fired up to deliver for customers. They're excited about that. Uh, one of the things I'm really proud of when you think about kind of the employee experience, Amazon is about great pay. So we now have $19 an hour, which is over a dollar more year on year. Uh, we've got great benefits to start at day one. Uh, and so we really do think about kind of what's the right thing for the employee. We are really focused on upskilling. And so we've made an upskilling pledge of over $1.2 billion. And that in incorporates that kind of prepaying for college tuition. Uh, it incorporates really thinking about uh, how do we help with GEDs? How do we help with English as a second language? And also how do we help with kind of people on their Amazon career path? Uh, and so what does it mean? Because they think about kind of maybe I can go from an hourly associate picking to a maintenance tech or a robotics tech. Um, and so a lot of different ways of thinking about the career path at Amazon. But it really is Prime Day is special because of the employees. And that's what makes me happy. We have a lot of fun. Does it mean a lot of overtime, John? Do you pay them overtime? Yeah, so uh, when necessary, we try not to, but yeah, when necessary, everyone is earning overtime and time and a half pay, uh, which ah. does get people excited for, for, for this time. <laughs> I'm sure. But you try not to pay them overtime because you just don't want to burn people out. Is that the we message? We don't want to burn people out, yeah. 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 We, we, we like to have the 40-hour work week, but, but times like this where, uh, where there is more volume, we will, we will pay time and a half, and, and employees do get excited about that. Yeah, I mentioned that robotic stat, which was um, an eighth of the, the packages that you delivered on an annual basis in 2022 were sorted, filtered by robots. Is that a job that used to be done by some of those workers or is it just facilitating the same number of workers and just making them more efficient? Yeah, the, the way we kind of think about robotics and kind of Amazon has been, I think, the number one job creator across the world in the last couple of years. And that's as we've been investing in robots. Uh, and so robotics just help the, help our employees do their jobs better. Uh, so behind me, you see both employees and then there's robots that are moving the shelves around. And so what what it used to happen is the employee would have to walk many miles a day. Uh, and now the, the, now the robots will bring the, will bring the items to the employees so they can focus on picking and stowing. Uh, and so it's that collaborative robotics uh, that makes jobs safer, makes jobs more productive, uh, and makes jobs easier that we, we're really focused on. Yeah, I love the point that you make about safety as well. I'm sure you, as um, certainly we in the United States, are watching the negotiation between um, Teamsters and UPS, they represent around 340,000 UPS workers. And this is something that's existed for many years at UPS. But John, I have seen people referring to this as perhaps an eye into the future of what a unionized Amazon workforce would look like. How closely are you following that? And um, what's your view on that? Is unionization better for workers or do you think Amazon workers um, are better without it? And, and why, if so? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're talking to UPS. UPS has been a longtime partner, a very good partner of ours. And so we're watching it closely with them. The good news for when I think about my network um, is over the last few years, we've built kind of the, our transportation capacity nearly the size of UPS. Uh, and so a vast majority of packages that we deliver, especially on Prime Day, are delivered through our network. Um, and so we think we'll be impacted by any sort of uh, kind of worker disruption a lot less than other people. Uh, but UPS has been a great partner over the years, and we continue to work very closely with them. And the unionization threat? 
for me, I, I love the kind of direct connection that I have with my employees. Uh, and that is what y yesterday I was talking to a lot of employees around here and, and they're excited for Prime Day. They're excited about kind of what we're doing. Uh, they love the great pay. They love the benefits. Uh, they love the environment here. And so feel really good about having that direction, direct connection uh, with, uh, with our employees. And that's where we think we want to go. Yeah, interesting. I've heard of, uh, of certainly business leaders who say they like the consolidated message of a union, but your touch point with workers is an interesting counter. Um, let's talk about AI, because I know artificial intelligence, um, automation, that kind of technology is long. We're talking decades it have been in use at, at Amazon across the business. But generative AI specifically, John, talk to me about that in terms of the customer experience. And to make the question more specific, let's think um, Amazon Prime 2028, so five years ahead. <laughs> What's generative AI going to mean for the customer experience? Yeah, it, it's going to change a lot of things. We're very excited about kind of where generative AI is going. I think the last just couple months has changed a lot of people's thinking about what this could do. As you said earlier, I mean, Amazon's been using AI for decades. Uh, and when I think about kind of my business, uh, I've got a supply chain optimization technology team that has to manage kind of, we've got a catalog of over 400 million items. And so we're thinking about what is the uh, what is the, the forecasting, what is the, uh, the buying that we need to do on 400 million items. And we have to do that every day. And so the AI that is used there is, I mean, very deep, uh, a very impressive technology. We also think, especially on Prime Day, personalization, uh, that uses a lot of the AI technology that we have. And your, your website experience is going to be personalized to you even better than it was before because of AI technology. The robotics that we talked about, we've got 750,000 mobility robots uh, running around the world, uh, and that all uses AI technology for kind of how do we kind of synchronize them and get them moving the right way. Uh, and then my last one that I get excited about is what we call Fleet Edge, which is on our vans uh, in our last mile fleet. And that helps our mapping and our routing. Uh, and so it is, it is understanding kind of where we're doing. And then routing improvements uh, just improves the fuel efficiency, improves the carbon impact that we have uh, of our routing. So where kind of AI has been, has been, uh, been amazing and incredibly helpful for us. And I agree with you, kind of where we're going in the future, I think it's going to change the game for how you think about shopping, how you think about productivity uh, with software de development. There's just a lot of goodness that's going to be coming from that. Yeah, and search, because I know a lot of people search on Amazon search. before they get to other browsers, and sometimes that can be a little suspect. So any help on the um, search function and functionality for, for AI and perhaps some of the feedback from customers would be useful too. John, can we expect yeah. that? hallucination yeah, free. I <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a there's a lot that we're investing in, and kind of I think uh, yeah. as we've kind of described, there's there's kind of different layers, and I think that application layer of kind of how we're going to use generative AI is going to change the game on a lot of things. Of how do you think about kind of what your shopping assistant really looks like? How do you think about what customer customer service really looks like? There's a lot of improvements that we're going to be coming rolling out over the coming months and years that I think are going to be really changing uh, how people think about shopping on Amazon and how people think about interacting with Amazon. Final, final, final quick question. Prime 2023 going to be bigger than 2022? That's the hope. We've got more deals than ever before. Uh, and so, as I said earlier, kind of uh, Prime members saved $1.7 billion last year, and I'm hoping they save even more this year. Uh, and so it's been amazing to kind of see some of the deals that we have. Uh, we've got 50 off the top selling toys, up to 75% off Amazon devices. Uh, there's amazing deals that we have. And I think the, the fun part about Prime Day is there's a deal for everybody. Uh, I know I've got friends who they, they use it for to go buy their more toothpaste and more shampoo. And so you can get your everyday essentials <laughs> even on, on, on deal. And so that's the fun part of Prime Day is there's something for everybody. 
Fantastic. They should have you out there advertising. John, great to chat to you. Thank <laughs> exactly. you. Good luck. Keep those Thank people so busy and well paid. John Felton there, Senior Vice President of Worldwide Operations at Amazon. Thank you. Still ahead, let no idea on food waste go to waste. We'll introduce you to a biotech startup helping to keep food fresher for longer in developing nations. After the break. Welcome back to First Move. Cutting down on food waste is a worthy goal all over the world. It's especially welcome, though, in developing countries where a lot of precious produce spoils before it even gets to market. A new biotech startup has found an ingenious way to pack fruits and vegetables to keep them fresher for longer. Their story is today's Global Connections. Deepak doesn't just have one new idea each day, he has five. By writing like five or ten new ideas every day, you get a curiosity and you think about new ideas constantly. That becomes a muscle memory for you. A few years back, one particular idea stuck with Deepak, which caught the attention of the World Economic Forum and earned him a $100,000 prize. Just looking at the fruits and vegetables, it's a living being. When you transport and trade living being, controlling that life is very, very critical. The research and and the science understanding of those packaging is very, very limited. About a third of food we produce is lost or wasted worldwide. In developed countries, consumers usually waste food by letting it spoil after bringing it home. But in the developing world, it's often lost because these countries don't have ways to refrigerate produce before it reaches customers. To address this, Deepak launched Green Pod Labs, a biotech startup that prevents produce from rotting by rethinking the way it's packed. Green Pod Labs created these sachets, which contain a formula of volatile plant extracts. They're packed into produce cartons and, according to Deepak, can slow down the rate of ripening by up to 60%. The one on the left are mangoes where our product was integrated. One on the right are mangoes without the product. So you can significantly see how the firmness, everything is maintained. Just like us, every plant has its own immune system. And by studying them individually, Deepak's team devised a way to activate it naturally. Farmers, traders, exporters, retailers. I spoke with all those customers to understand their perspective on food waste and food loss. It was very clear that customers did not want a cold storage replacement because the operational expenses were so high. Customers like Arjun cared more about their immediate challenges. As a trader, he buys fruit from farmers and sells it in nearby cities, meaning the road conditions have a huge impact on business. We have been working mostly in the northeast. It is considered one of the most difficult routes. Because the produce isn't fresh by the time it reaches these places, it doesn't get the price it should be getting. Arjun has only been using the Green Pod sachets since January, but he says they've reduced the spoilage rate by about 75%. Arjun only trades regionally, but a handful of Green Pod Lab clients export internationally. Uh, it starts with a small idea, but if you pursue that relentlessly and with a passion, um, I think you can solve majority of problems. The Bud Light boycott building sales have dropped by more than 28% over the last four weeks after a backlash against the brand's partnership with a transgender influencer. For more details, Ryan Young has this report. 
A culture war is brewing over Bud Light, dividing beer drinkers as much as the country is itself. Unlike anything I'd ever seen. I don't give a if you drink Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light, it doesn't matter. If you don't like what somebody's selling, just don't go there. Stop being butthurt about everything that goes on in the world. I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood. The brouhaha stems from Bud Light's short-lived partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Love ya! The fury from the right, enough to dethrone Bud Light as the best-selling beer in America for the first time in two decades. The controversy has taken center stage in Nashville, where two of country music's biggest stars, Garth Brooks and Kid Rock, have bars just steps away from each other on Broadway. What's fascinating to me is that right here on Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee, the culture wars have come down to two big personalities in this town. It illustrates the way the whole country is responding to the transgender acceptance. Garth Brooks says he plans to carry the beer at his yet-to-open bar. I'm a bar owner now. Are we going to have the most popular beers in the thing? Yes. I get it. Everybody's got their opinions. But inclusiveness is always going to be me. A block down Broadway, Kid Rock made his feelings known when he posted this video shooting up cases of Bud Light. Despite the online bravado and talk of a boycott, Bud Light was available when CNN stopped in recently. It is not clear if the ban had been lifted or if there ever had been one to begin with. Nashville marketing executive Bill Fletcher says the whole country seems to be engaging in the same heated conversation. With Kid Rock, you have this dark, angry, finger-pointing, shooting a gun at a Bud Light can. And Garth Brooks is, is, hey, I love everybody and openness and acceptance. And I think it's what uh, you, you've seen in the country, going back to African-Americans, to gay people. Well, now it's transgender. Here on Broadway, where fans from all around the world come to maybe listen to some music and drink some beer, this Bud Light controversy has left a bad taste in a lot of fans' mouths. It's quite simple. People just don't want it shoved down their throat. No Bud Light, because it's like I have grandchildren. We don't need to put that in the young kids' heads. In Chicago, at Two Bears Tavern, a bar that caters to mostly gay patrons, they also feel strongly about not serving Bud Light anymore. But for the opposite reason, they believe the brand left Dylan Mulvaney alone on an island to face a mountain of hate. To be a true ally means that you don't push us behind the scenes and say, well, I'm going to give you some money, but I really don't want you to be front and center or public. But in some Nashville bars, the backlash against Bud Light was hardly felt. We had one guy who said, I refuse to drink that anymore. One guy. And everybody else in the bar kind of rolled their eyes at him. And there were plenty of bar hoppers on Broadway who were simply ready to move on. Let's move on and, and let, hell, let's party. We're in Nashville, damn it. <laughs> Are you not bothered at all by this Bud Light controversy? You're like, ah. No, not at all. I don't give a shit what they do. <laughs> I was going to say something, but on that note, I'm just going to I'm just going to move on. But it is a beer and burger end to the show. It's a little early for me, but if you're feeling peckish, may I invite you to check out Burger King's latest offering in Thailand. There's no meat involved, just 20 slices of cheese and the bun, of course. I suspect that technically makes it a cheese sandwich, but details, details. Demand for the so-called real cheeseburger is apparently off the charts, mainly thanks to viral videos of people eating them 
on social media. Now, I did a, I did some analysis, 381 calories for a Burger King cheeseburger. And I believe each one of those little cheese slices is 113 calories. So I make that 2,260 calories for the cheese alone. Good luck with that. That's it for the show. Wowzers. Connect the World is up next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.